Hey, why don't you stand to your feet? We're gonna get ready to read and honor God's word together. We're in the midst of a series called The Good Life. Turn to a neighbor and say, The Good Life. Talking about how to thrive in life and finances. Last week was all about what does God actually have to say about generosity, about giving, about missions, about this thing called tithing. Like what, what does the Bible actually have to say about that? If you missed it, would love for you to check that out on our YouTube channel, podcast, search Greenhouse South Florida and you'll find it wherever you find those things. This week, if we talked last week and really started the conversation about generosity and giving, this week I wanna unpack, well, what does God have to say about all the rest of the stuff we do with money? like spending and saving and investing. This week, my hope is to make a very practical time together as we look at God's wisdom for finances. Does that sound like a good plan to anybody? God, what do you have to say? So turn your Bibles to Matthew 25. As you're turning there, we will take our moment to celebrate South Florida sports. Heaven, it feels like. Miami Heat, it's getting a little scary. Heat fans, how are we feeling right now? Not great, right? Thank God Jesus is on the throne, amen. And we pray he endues Jimmy Butler with power from on high uh, to, be, to be the victor in this next game. Florida Panthers fans, we swept our last team. So we are headed for the first time in 27 years to the Stanley Cup Finals. Celebrate with us, all four of us hockey fans, as we are thrilled at this momentous occasion. And we pray that the Miami Heat do not take a page from the Miami Dolphins and Snatch defeat from the clutches of victory. Matthew 25, before we get depressed, let's listen to Jesus. He's telling a parable, an earth story with a heavenly meaning about God's kingdom. And he says, here's what it's like. Again, it's like a man going on a journey. He calls his servants to himself and he entrusts, what does it say? His property, his wealth to them. Whose wealth is it? This is important. To one, he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts. The man who had received five talents brought back five more and said, Master, you gave me five? I gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't that the longing of our hearts to hear that? Well done, good and faithful servant. I will put you, you have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The same thing happens with the guy with two. He multiplies it two more. The master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with little. I'll put you in charge over more. But the man, verse 24, who would receive one talent said, master, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seeds. So I was, what does it say? Afraid. I would counter that the number one challenge when it comes to thriving in life as finances is not lack of resources, it's fear. He said, but I was afraid and I went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. That would be a bummer. You knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so I at least get some interest. Take the talent from him who has none, the master said. 
and give it to the one who has 10. For everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. And what, whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless service outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do we think God takes this seriously? And he tells this story as a warning so that we can flourish and thrive. Let's pray. Jesus, you love us so much. You love every single member of this church family, every single person watching online, our whole crew in Guyana so much. And you share your wisdom with us because you want us to thrive in life and in finances. Help us this morning to hear your words and follow your lead. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn your neighbor, give him a high five. You can find your seat. Tell him it's going to be good. This is going to be good. You're like, I'm, I'm, you're just saying it in faith, all right? I know I already did my little sports plug, but when you make it to the Stanley Cup Finals for the first time in 27 years, you get another mention in the sermon. I have been stunned by the Florida Panthers this year. All right, I grew up here. I know I'm a South Floridian, but I grew up playing hockey. I was one of those weird guys. I, I played all the way through undergrad. I played all the way into college at the University of Florida. And so I, I, we grew up in a hockey family. In fact, my mom and dad would go on date nights all the time. And so I, I, at the Panthers games, they would go on these date nights. And I've been stunned watching this Florida Panthers team. How in the world just like the Miami Heat, they were the last, last team to eke their way into the playoffs. And here they are sweeping teams into the Stanley Cup Finals. How did it happen? Now, this is interesting. They largely had the same roster from last year that they have from this year. Last year, if you're following hockey, which all four of us do, uh, the, the Panthers were the best team in the regular season. They had the most goals. They were this high-scoring, incredible offensive attack. They were a, a beauty to behold. They made it into the playoffs, and they got whooped. I mean, we got swept. We went into the offseason. We made one big trade. We got Matthew Kachuk, this one guy who's been great for us, and we, we shipped off two of our best, one offensive, one defensive player. We made one big trade, but by and large, they kept this team the same, and yet here we are, whereas last year we made it into the playoffs and we got swept. We're now in the playoffs sweeping teams. How in the world? I've got one hypothesis. My dad, as you know, that I miss very much is up in heaven. He actually had his stroke, his last breath on earth. He was yelling, shoot the puck. True story, mom, is this, is this accurate? And so my mom and I joked that he's up in heaven with Jesus, like, come on, Lord, all the, after all the stuff we did, can you please throw him a bone? And, uh, and so he's up there. So that's one thing, who knows, it's a mystery, but, but there's, there's really one, only one other thing that changed. We made it to the trade deadline. Lots of teams were making all these moves to try to make their team fortified for a playoff run. We did almost nothing, except this year we had a different coach. See, what happened last year is our approach to hockey was, man, we got to just go after it. We were an offensive-minded team. We got to score as many goals as possible. It was beautiful. It was finesse. But when you get into the playoffs, it's gritty hockey, and teams are hitting and fighting, and we did not last. And our new coach took a new approach, and he said, we are going to play defensive sound hockey. Our guys can score, but we're going to play defense. And what we found in this year is we did not need a shift in personnel. What we needed was a new approach. What's the point? I'm just excited about hockey, okay? Just give it to me. 27 years, okay? But I want us to take this principle and apply it in the context of this conversation. Friends, I would argue 
that in our modern, sophisticated, cultural framework, our approach to finances is absolutely broken. And it's destroying us. Let me paint a picture of our modern financial landscape to build a case for why we actually need God's ancient wisdom in our modern world. As we look at the demographic research and the data, the average American is near, in nearly $60,000 of debt. Credit card debt is about 14,000 car loans or about 31,000 student loans is about 58,000. When it comes to the amount of Americans in that level of crippling debt, it's about 77% of Americans. Now, a small percentage of that statistic are, are increasing assets. They're wealth-generating assets. They're, they're things like a, a mortgage or an appreciating invest, uh, investment, but the majority of that is not. The way this plays out and impacts us in our modern world is that 60% of Americans are living from paycheck to paycheck. 60%. You said, well, John, that must be a poverty issue. Actually, this spans the demographic research in terms of income. This is everything from people living under the poverty line in government-subsidized housing to people making six figures plus, living paycheck to paycheck. If you've ever been in that spot, you're like, man, you know the stress, the anxiety that that must create. Well, in fact, that is indeed the case. When it comes to anxiety and stress, a February 2022 study by the American Psychological Association came back and polled that 46% of women and 38% of working-aged men said money has a negative effect on their mental health. This is bad, but it gets even worse. As we look into future up-and-coming generations, it, it, it gets even worse. 81% of millennials and 82% of Jay -Z, Generation Z or Gen Z in that same study reported that money is, quote, a significant source of stress and anxiety. Here's my point. In our modern world where, where you can find a proliferation of TikTok influencers and social media voices telling you all of the incredible ways, if you have $4 to spend on coffee, don't. Instead, buy a house and use the income to get you appreciating in, in all of our crazy ideas that we toss out on social media. The reality is our sophisticated modern world has taken an approach to finances that is broken. And as we look into the generations, it's only getting worse. We need a new approach. This is not conjecture and this is not hypothesis. This is the truth of the statistical research and the data. Let's go back to the words of Jesus. At the very beginning of this story, it says, again, the kingdom of God is like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted, what does it say? his wealth to them. The very beginning, if you follow Jesus, and if not, and you're listening in on the conversation, man, we're thrilled that you're here. We pray that you sense God's presence. You feel encouraged by the time that you leave, if you're watching online, in the room, in Guyana. But, but if you follow Jesus, this is how Jesus framed the reality of wealth and possessions. A master entrusted to servants his stuff. Biblically, this principle is called stewardship. If you're taking notes, I would write that one down real big in your notes or jot it down for you there. This is the idea of stewardship. If you're familiar with the term manager, this would be a good equivalent term. The idea here is that we are not the owners of the stuff. We are simply the managers. We are simply the stewards. We are managing it for a moment until the owner come back, comes back, and then we must give an account. 
You say, John, if our modern approach to finances is not working, which by the way, the, the research is clear, it is not working, what do we do? I would, I would encourage that we ask the owner, that we ask God, that we ask the good news, the hope that we have is that God is not stumbling around in heaven like, oh my gosh, what do we do with this uncertain economy? Gabriel, quick, get in here. Michael, come on, we gotta figure this out. Brainstorm time, guys. Let's go to the whiteboard. Like God is not struggling in heaven with the financial landscape. He's good, seated on the throne and God knows exactly what to do because it's, it's his stuff. In fact, it's his world. And because he loves you, and he wants you to thrive, check this. He offers his financial counseling services for free. Think about that for a second. If you had like the best wealth advisor in the world that's like, hey, listen, I'll give you my services for free, you'd be like, what's the catch? You're lying, or this is a crazy person. No, 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 this is true. This is a true story. Too good to be true. It's actually true. God, the wise one, the creator of all things, offers his financial wisdom on his stuff because he understands the world better than anyone else for free if we have ears to listen and a humble heart to receive it. Are you ready to listen to what he has to say? Here's my prayer for this morning, that you and I, that we would trade our money wisdom for his money wisdom. That in the midst of a world that has given us broken advice and broken systems out of no ill will or malevolent intent necessarily, that we would trade our money wisdom, your money wisdom for his money wisdom. Are we willing to listen? All right, let me unpack what I mean by this sort of juxtaposition. Here's, by and large, the way our world deals with life, stuff, finances, material possessions. We typically start with our spending, and really we start with our wants. I began this category saying we start with our needs, but actually we, we typically like, well, what do I want to do? And then we try to convince ourselves that we actually need to do it. Like, no, no, but I really need that new car because you see, then, then it's, I'm going to have to do less maintenance on it. And it's going to really, we're amazing at convincing ourselves. That. So we start with spending with our wants, and then we move to spending with our needs. And then if we have a little bit left over, we might consider saving. And then at the very end, we're like, oh, snap. And whatever, whatever the crumbs might be, we're like, I probably should do something for somebody else. And so then we, then we give. God's way with money, it actually starts, it's inverting the pyramid. God's way of dealing with money, it starts with, with generosity. It starts with giving. Then it moves to wisdom and saving. And it finally ends and culminates with what's left over to spend. You guys tracking with the difference here? It's a polar opposite approach, the way that God lays out. Now remember, his money, God's money wisdom flows from this idea of stewardship. It, it has to start there. It starts from a place of realizing everything I have is a gift from who? From God, right? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You're like, I don't know. He owns the Teslas in a thousand lots, right? Like, like he owns everything. And because he's the owner, I can give with generosity because it's not mine in the first place. It's, it's God's. And God loves me and he cares for me. So here's a basic framework for structuring your life and finances based off of God's money wisdom. For the past 17 years or so, I was privileged to be raised by a father who was an incredible, uh, generous disciple of Jesus and raised us as young as I can remember with these three little jars, give, save, and spend. And we always did it in that order. So I titled this message in honor of him, give, save, spend. I'm gonna jump into it. 
Part number one is this. If you want to follow in God's path of flourishing for your life and finances, point number one, you start with generosity. You start with generosity. There's all sorts of amazing promises from God as we step out in generosity. I'll read you a few of them, but you can find a bunch more throughout the scriptures. Proverbs 11 says this, one person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Proverbs 21 says, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. That's a scary promise. And finally, Proverbs 22.9 says, the generous will themselves be blessed for they share their food with the poor. He said, so where do we start? Okay, if we, if we start with generosity, if God's money wisdom starts with generosity, where do we start? If you remember from last week, my encouragement is to start where God started with his people. It's to start with 10%. That give, I recommend starting at 10%. Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10. Remember, we, we did a whole sermon on this last week. If you missed it, you can go back and check it out, but I'll hit it briefly. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops, then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. Last week, we talked about how the, the, this, this 10% is what's biblically called the tithe. This was the training wheels of generosity for the people of God. This was before the Mosaic law in the Old Testament. It was codified by Moses in the Old Testament. It was emphasized and echoed again by Jesus in the New Testament. And then it was increasingly upped in standard by the New Testament church in the book of Acts. They started at 10, and as Jesus and the grace of God entered in, they gave more and more and more. This was about faith. The reason it starts with that first 10%, the reason God's call to his people was whenever you get the firstborn of your animals or your livestock in an agrarian society, that was their way of, of amassing and accruing wealth. Give the first fruits to the Lord. Why? Because it's faith. You're trusting that if you give first, God is gonna do all, all the rest. For the people of God, this was about giving to their local body, to their local congregation, to their local synagogue. It was not about control. It was about faith. It was about relinquishing without any uh, designated right on what's actually going to happen with it. You're trusting in the provision of God. And I'll get more into what it could look like to designate generosity. One of the things that's near and dear to our heart is, is missions and the poor. By the way, if all you do is tithe here, you're like, man, I just, uh, when God blesses me that first 10%, if all you do is tithe here, you're giving to missions because we're giving 50% of everything we spend to missions and the poor. So you're, you're helping to change the world and do all sorts of stuff here locally and all over the world just as a result of stepping out in those training wheels of generosity. And, and listen, if you're not a Jesus follower, you're like, this is crazy. It works, but I get it totally cool. If you're new to Greenhouse, you're like, man, I, I've had bad experiences with church and money. I, I, I'm sorry, and I get that as well. That's why we do things like the annual report. We put everything out there. You can ask any questions that you have. We would love to have that dialogue and conversation. And if you're here and you're like, this sounds impossible. Like, are you for real? 10 per, like the first 10% of my income, of my budget is, is given away. Okay. Where can you start? Start something, I can start at 4%, 5%. Okay, great. Start wherever you can start with a vision to grow as you go, just like in every other area of life, right? We wanna grow in our careers. We wanna grow in our faith. We wanna grow emotionally. We wanna grow as spouses, as, as friends, as, as workers. We wanna grow in generosity as well. Here's how it fleshes out for the church. Start where you're at and then grow as God moves your heart. 
Our church didn't start giving 50% away to missions, church planning, and the poor. I've shared the story before in Gainesville. We started giving 10%, and God stirred our hearts, and we saw global needs, and we worked our way up to that over time. It's the same thing Nancy and I are trying to do personally with our personal finances. Like, this is how, just peel back the curtain, this is how John and Nancy, as disciples of Jesus, deal with our finances. When, when at the beginning of the year, or at the end of the year, when we're getting ready to set our budget for the new year, if we got any raises, we're like, oh, awesome. Sort of no-brainer is the first 10% we give back to God in the tithe. We're like, that, that's kind of the dove for us. We've watched God come through time and time again. That's an act of faith for us. But then we set another line item in our budget called missions and generosity. And that, the goal of that category is to be increasing each year as God blesses us financially. That's the type of stuff where if missionary Sam comes, we've got that money already pooling up in a budget line item that we can give, that as our kids experience, they see a homeless person there, we can give, that as we hear about a need in our microchurch, we can give. We've got the starting point, right, those training wheels of generosity, and then we're growing. We've got a vision for what we would love the Lord to do through our lives if he blesses us. By the way, it's not just finances either. either. When it comes to considering and thinking about generosity, starting with generosity first, my encouragement would be to think about this in a holistic way, which means it's not just your stuff. It is also your energy, love, and your time. Structure it into your time. A great question for disciples of Jesus to be asking is, are you giving the first and best of your time to the things that matter most? Are you giving that dedicated, focused time to your spouse, to your kids, to your family, to the Lord, to serving God and his heart for the poor and the marginalized and the disenfranchised? It's one of the reasons it's a big deal for us, and we're so excited to have some of our local missions partners here. It's like, man, take some time after service and go talk to Love Inc. and find out what their needs are, what their volunteer needs are, what their monetary needs are. Find out what's happening with Firewall and youth right here in our city. Give and be generous of your time because God's way starts with generosity. It starts with generosity, and then number two, it moves into wisdom. Everybody say wisdom. Say sabiduría in Spanish, the language, Spanish, the language of heaven. All right, next is wisdom, and my starting point recommendation here is give 10%, save 10%. You're like, what about spending? We haven't gotten to that yet. This is God's order. The next one is to save 10%. God's wisdom for our finances involves a vision for the future. Where it's so easy to get caught up in the immediate and urgent things, God calls and cautions us to consider the important but not urgent things and to do those things first. Here's a few of the Proverbs that echo that heart. Proverbs 21.20 says, The wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs all down. Proverbs 13 says a good person or other versions say a wise person leaves an inheritance for their children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. Uh, a good consistent starting point rule of thumb here when Nancy and I sit down and, and do marital counseling or premarital counseling for couples, we start with a basic overarching budgetary framework based off of kingdom principles. We call it 10 10 80 10% giving, 10% saving, 80% spending. A good rule of thumb as a starting point here is to start with another 10%. Just like with generosity, you can grow it over time, but start with 10. That's my recommendation. You said, John, this, this is all well and good, 
but what planet do you live in? Like, I, do you know South Florida? Like, gas car, like, you have, to, you have to, like, mortgage off your house to be able to fill up your gas tank. Like, what, how in the world, how would we ever do this? And I hear it, and I hear it quite often. John, I can't afford to give. I can't afford to save. Now, let me be fair. Sometimes that is true. There are unique, acute situations and scenarios where some sort of financial crisis hits where you have to pull everything back and put all your resources into one basket. Totally get that. Health emergencies happen. Life emergencies happen. At the same time, tires do go flat. We know that, right? Like cars do break down. Like there, we, we do not live in eternal vehicle realm. Like there are things that happen that are emergencies, but that's why we have like emergency funds because we're anticipating that they will, like you, I, I will go anoint your car with oil, but a nail will findeth you. It will happen, right? And so often when we hit these crises, they're not simply acute moments. They could, and I would argue should have been anticipated for, this is God's wisdom to help us live in peace, easy yoke, light burden, because the wise individual plans in advance for the future. They consider the future. Sometimes it is truly, I can't afford it. It is, it is a unique circumstance of acute financial need and crisis, but more often it is a result of an ongoing problem of the wrong philosophy and approach to finances that contradicts God's wisdom and instead goes with the wisdom and obsession and of the immediacy that's evidenced by our world. If we go back to this paradigm here. The world's way says you start with spending, wants, and needs. Then you go to leftovers, and you might save a little bit, and at the very end, you give the crumbs if you have them left over to God and serving others. God's way says you start with generosity, then you move into wisdom and saving. Notice we're at step two, and we still haven't talked about spending. Don't, we're going to get there. I didn't forget about it, all right? This is, this is how God's paradigm fleshes out. There's one principle here that I have found immensely helpful in my personal life and with other congregants and members of our church family that I love that has helped people live in that easy yoke and light burden, thriving in life and finances like Jesus desires, desires for us. It's the principle of margin. Everybody say margin. The principle of margin. If you're taking notes, jot this down. This one will, oh man, this is so helpful. In Leviticus 19, God lays out a framework for his people. Remember, this is an agrarian society. So when he's talking about harvesting and finances, just think for yourself, paycheck, that would have been their symbol of wealth in the ancient world. This is what he says. He says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather up the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Instead, leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord, your God. Make it make sense, okay. God is saying you could live off of 100% of what is yours, but it's not yours, it's mine, God says. So instead, I'm telling you, don't do that. If, you, if your agrarian income could be here, structure your life where you're living off of this. Now, here's the wisdom in that. Remember, 60% of Americans do what? They live paycheck to paycheck, which means they make this and they're living this. Do you know the level of financial stress and strain on every facet of your life that that now creates? Number one cause of divorce is infidelity and adultery. Can you guess what number two is? Finances. 
if you are living at the maximum earning potential of what you have, any little scenario that happens is a crisis of stress in your life. But if you're doing what God said and your max income is here, but you're leaving the corners for the poor, you're living with margin, you're living with breathing room. Something pops up and you're like, oh no, but wait, we've got this. God's provided. God's giving them a wisdom to say, these are things like have an emergency fund in modern vernacular. These would be things like have an emergency fund. Be thinking in advance for your kid's college. You're like, have you met my kid? Just pray blessing on them every day and then prepare in advance financially for their college. These are things like retirement savings. These are not anti-kingdom things. These are Bible kingdom things. These actually are supposed to come before we're thinking about our spending. It's wisdom. It's saving. Now, again, I, I want to be sensitive here. I get it on this topic. Like, we're all, like, clenched, like, oh, what's he going to say? There is so much hope. There's so much grace here. Like, if, if you are living right now and your life is a financial mess, I get it. I am so sorry. Welcome to the majority of Americans, right? I shared the stats. It's like, that's everybody. Like, that's, that's just where we're at because we're going off of the modern-day financial wisdom. So we're, we're, we're talking something brand new here. It's totally cool. There's grace. As long as you are still breathing oxygen, there is so much hope for you. Amen? There's still time. God wants you to thrive in life as finances. We would love to help you. This week, we're, we're wrapping up this series here today. This week... Say, man, I'm, I'm going to schedule coffee. Even text them today. Hey, I'd love to meet up. Talk to your microchurch leader. Think about that trusted friend, that, that mentor that you're like, man, they, they really seem to just live life with such peace and ease, and they're generous. And I, Set up a meeting. Set up a coffee. Set up a conversation. We've got a benevolence team here that would love to dive in with you and do a holistic look at your life and finances and figure out a way to help you thrive so you don't have to continue to live in the perpetual trap of stress and lack and terror that often finances can be. They are a great tool, but a horrible master. We've got an incredible organization here, Love Inc. It's one of the things that they do. They help people develop life skills, soft skills, budgeting. They've got an incredible team that does all sorts of stuff. Maybe talk to them afterwards. God's way, it starts with generosity. Then number two, it moves on to wisdom. And finally and lastly, God's way ends up where the world way starts with wants, needs, and spending. My encouragement here is to consider 80% of your budget for that. Once you've done the giving, starting with generosity because God has been so good, so generous, so faithful because he's got all of these promises, dare you, test me in this, see what I do. You're basically saying, God, I'm gonna give you a shot here. You start with generosity, you move on to wisdom and then in the final 80%, you deal with your spending. The world's way is spend, then if you got it, save, then maybe perchance if it's there, give. God's way is flipped. It's give, save, and lastly, spend. Now, this is fascinating. I, I read the statistics. Most Americans, 60% right now, live paycheck to paycheck. Why? You might say, well, John, it's a poverty issue. That, that maybe is some of it, 
But if, if it was just a poverty issue, we would see that percentage relegated to the demographic that is living at or below or slightly above the poverty line. But this spans the spectrum of income. This is people that are making below poverty. This is people that are making well into six figures and beyond, still living paycheck to paycheck. Why? Because our core financial issue is not a lack of resources. It's our poor structuring of those resources. I would argue it's a biblical word. The majority of our financial issues, obviously there are caveats, there are, there are exceptions, there are acute financial moments. You guys have heard all of, my, all of those different things. But by and large, we are structured this way in America because of one word we have not learned. Contentment. Contentment. Look at Paul in Philippians 4. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were consumed, but you had no opportunity to show it. Verse 11. Now, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be what? Content. Whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who give me strength. Anybody heard that verse before? You're like, are you saying that verse is not about Tim Tebow and football? No! It's about contentment. It's about being content when you have financial lack. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Come on, ramen noodles and hot dogs, let's go. I don't need filet today. Now, this is fascinating because what Paul does not say is, for I have been birthed in contentment. What Paul does not say is, the rest of you guys haven't figured this out, but I have been elevated and I'm just content by nature. Anybody met a child that was just content with what they had when they saw someone else got better? I have not. Which is why Paul says, I have learned. Put those verses up again. Look at what he says. He does not say, I have become, I have found, I have stumbled. He says, I have learned the secret of being content. Here's what I need you to understand. If you continue in the same learnings, you will continue in the same outcomes. If finances are like they are for the majority of the Americans, a principal key cause of stress and anxiety, 82% of millennials, 81% of Gen Z, if that is indeed the case and we are not anomalies to the statistic because we are just homo sapiens, we're human beings, then you have to learn new skills to end up with new outcomes. How would we do that? Ask God. Ask God. Say, God, I... I, I, I struggle to be content with what you've given me. And then I find, anybody else find the trap of social media to be particularly unhelpful in this arena? Like you're feeling good about your little thing that you got. You just got a new pair of shoes. You just got a new outfit. You're feeling great until you hit the, the, the doomsday scroll. And then by the end of it, what started is feeling so good. All of a sudden you're like, my stuff is horrible. You do realize there are billions of dollars thrown into the, the arena of anti-contentment, right? It's called marketing. Marketing is literally anti-contentment. If you're in marketing, we love you, God bless you, but you know what you're doing, right? Listen, it, you, everyone's gotta make a living, right? You can choose how effective that is on your soul though. 
And I'm telling you, Paul is like, I have, I have learned. He's, he even calls it the secret. I've learned that, guys, you wanna know a secret? To thrive in life and finances? Here it is. Contentment. Contentment. I talked a few weeks about, about going to other parts of the world, and I'm like, goodness gracious, they have just nailed this aspect of life and spirituality so much better. You know what I see when I go over and hang out with missionary Benson and his crew in Africa? Contentment. You know what I see when we're over in Haiti and we're in Cite Soleil and we're hanging out with, with Pastor Obed? Contentment. Paul says, I have learned to be content. For most of us, it's a new skill. It is not something that we are taught or discipled by our culture, which is why we can come to our God and say, Lord, help me, teach me. And he will. It's a new skill for many of us. It could be an absolutely life-changing skill. There's so much wisdom God wants to share. He, he just, I mean, he offers it. It says in James, liberally and without reproach. There's so much wisdom God wants to share. He wants us to thrive in life and finances. There's so much that he tosses out. I can't do it in a sermon. He has an entire book. God lays out all these things. This sermon was, was fleshing out to be like 57 minutes. And I was like, I gotta cut like four pages of it. There's wisdom about giving in secret and how good that is for the soul. When you don't post it online, and you don't even tell your mind, you just do it. And it's between you and Jesus. There's so much wisdom all, all throughout the book of Proverbs, warnings about debt, warnings, cautions against hastiness or getting rich quick, which almost always biblically is a warning. When someone tells you, this, you, bear, you have to do four minutes of work and you can make $400,000 a year. Warning, the Bible says, warning. Then on the other side of the equation, there's warnings against laziness and sloth. God is so wise because he loves you. He wants you to flourish. He wants you to thrive. Here's my application. I am praying that you and I, that we would trade our money wisdom for God's. That you would trade your money wisdom for God's money wisdom. That you'd become a steward. That you would decide in your heart, God, everything I have is yours. It is, but there's something different when you decide it is. No, it is. Everything I have is God's. We know this is true, right? Like he, every good and perfect gift comes from who? Not Jeff Bezos and Amazon. God. God, it comes from God. God, it's all yours. I'm a steward. I'm gonna trade my way for Yahweh. Dad joke. I'm gonna trade, like God, I'm gonna trade what I, my process, my approach, the approach I have inherited from my culture and family of origin, which might've been well-intentioned, but horrible. I'm gonna trade it for yours because you love me. Romans 12, 2, it, 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 we know this idea. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. We have all been given a pattern of this world when it comes to spending life and finances, and it is not leaving empirically to our thriving, but our withering and ultimately destruction. Choose a different route. Say, God, change my mind. Teach me to be content. I want to learn to be content. Teach me to think about finances like you do. I don't want to do give, save, and then may, uh, spend, save, and then maybe give. I want to do give, save, and then spend trusting that you are my provider and you love me more than I even care about myself. You have good things for me. The world's way is spend, save, give. God is give, save, spend. Spend. 
Start with generosity. Start with 10%, the training wheels, and then keep growing in generosity as God blesses you, just like in every other area of life you wanna grow. Grow in having a generous heart, open-handed for those in need, and watch what God does. Give of your time. Check out the local organizations we've got here after service. Then save. Look at the options that are provided for you through your job. Oftentimes, your job will give you 100% matching. I dare you to find an investment like that. Find out what your job has afforded to you to incentivize saving and planning for the future. Talk to your microchurch leader. Talk to a godly friend or mentor and say, hey, listen, I need help in this area. I don't want to be stuck in the cycle I've been in full of stress and anxiety over and over and over again. And then spend. But do this last. Consider wants and needs and be honest with which are which. And pray God helps you to learn to be content. The only way we do God's money, God's way, is when we realize we are just stewards and he is the owner. And by the way, this is not some quick fix. This takes a deliberate, disciplined mindset and mentality where you decide over and over and over again, I'm gonna switch my old way of thinking for God's way of thinking and be transformed by renewing my mind. It takes strong, consistent mental discipline over and over. It takes reminding yourselves of things like, God loves me and wants the best for me, Amen. It's reminding yourselves of things like social media voices don't love me, they actually don't know me, and in fact, they probably wanna sell me their course. Amen? It's thinking things like God knows my needs and he's my provider, not me. It's thinking things like God loves me so much that he even promises to give me the desires of my heart. He doesn't just say I'm gonna give you needs. He even says, man, bring me the wants. Let's talk about them. He's a good, generous, loving heavenly father. Church, I, this isn't theory for me. I've lived this, not perfectly, but I was blessed to have a dad who discipled me in this from when I was a little kid, trying to do it with my kids now. And I've just watched God come through time and time and time again and my parents were ministers, and we got to do all this stuff, and, ha and, and it was like, how in the world? Because God's word is true, and he cares for us deeply. And I'm praying that you decide to trade your money wisdom for God's money wisdom, because he loves you. I'm gonna land it here. This is the confidence that we have in the gospel. This is the confidence that we have in the good news of Jesus. If we know the story, and many of us do, here's the story. There was an owner, and his name was God. And he gave to us provision, talents, gifts, money, wealth. And he gave us a direction and a path in his word for us to follow and thrive in. And for all of us in this room, we said, that's great. Get out of my way. I'm going to do me. And we shunned his advice. And we disobeyed his decrees. And we went against every bit of sound, financial, fiscal, and life wisdom that he gave us. And we ran our lives into the ground, bankrupting our souls. Right? Now just pause for a moment and think about this in human terms. If you were that master and that owner and you had an employee like that, what would you do to them? You'd fire them. 
parable is so interesting because the man who had one talent and buried it in the sand, not only did he do the wrong thing, but he did the wrong thing because he had the wrong perspective. He said, Master, I know you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sowed, requiring what you have not given. And the master just parrots back this own man's perception of him. With the measure you use, Jesus said, it'll be measured back to you. But that's not this master. In fact, this master gave everything, and when he received rebellion and bankruptcy in return, instead of firing these employees, us, you and I, for our horrible mismanagement of the life, breath in our lungs, talents, abilities, and resources that we have been gifted to steward, he does not fire us. Guess what he does? He offers us adoption and an opportunity to not just be fired employees, but to become sons and daughters with an inheritance. Like, if, you, if, we, I'm t- if we can get this story right, the money wisdom of God is a no-brainer. It's like, whoa, wait a second. That's the type of owner we're talking about? That's the type of master we're talking about? That's the one who calls us to stewardship? Heaven, yes. I will do this to the day I die. Why? Because you can't outgive a God who already gave everything. He's amazing. He's incredible. And if you're trapped in anxiety, he offers you his peace. And if the weight of this feels too much to bear, he offers you his easy yoke and his light burden full of peace and joy. And if you're trapped in debt, he offers wisdom and a path towards flourishing because he loves you. And if you're in this room, if you're watching online, if you're over in Guyana, here's what I'm praying, and I've been praying all week long, that you would hear in faith. You do not have to struggle alone anymore. The cycle of torment, the cycle of fear, the cycle of anxiety, it can end right now. God so loved the world that he gave and he offers open-handed wisdom and provision and freedom and flourishing for any who are humble enough to come to him and say, the wisdom I've inherited is not working. I'm done with it. I'm gonna take yours. I had a strong sense at the end of the sermon last week, continuing all this week, that many of us in this room are doing or are tempted to hold our lives like this. And sometimes because of struggle and lack within our upbringing or family of origin, we are holding on to whatever bit of resources like this thinking, and we almost see it as a virtue. I will not let what I've been given slip out of my grasp. And God is saying, you are not keeping things in, you are pushing me out. Open up your hands. I've got better for you than you can get on your own. There's a freedom, there's a peace, there's a joy that comes with an open-handed approach to life that does not come when we close our fists down in tenacity and say, I'm gonna make this happen. Jesus said, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you weary from striving? And let go. Why don't you join me as we pray? Jesus, by your spirit, would you move in this room? Lord, I love our church family. You love this body 
You love this world. You love us so much, God, that we could, if we could only get a glimpse of your true character, your true nature, the nature of the owner, the master that we serve, we would trust you with it all. Because you desire good things for us, plans for a hope, plans for a future, to prosper, not to harm. If you're here this morning, if you're watching online, whenever you might be watching and you're struggling, maybe with shame, maybe it's condemnation, maybe it's hopelessness because of finances, because of this area in particular. Here's what I want you to hear. He is a God of resurrection. The same God who raised Jesus from the dead can work in your life in miraculous ways that seem absolutely impossible. He's done it for many of us in this room time and time and time and time again, and he would love to do it for you. But he will not force it. He will not pry open your fingers to open your hand. He loves you so much and honors you so much with the autonomy of free will that he gives you a choice. But he's so good and sovereign in his grace that he prompts us by his spirit and it's his grace that puts in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. If you sense something stirring in your heart, if you sense that nudge to, to release and relinquish control, to let him in, it's because he is working and drawing your heart by his spirit. Respond. Put your life, put your finances in his hand. Even right now in the room, online, you say, Jesus, I trust you. I, I release control. I let go. I trade my money wisdom, this world's money wisdom for yours. Teach me. Change me. Set me free.